Welcome to Medical Matters Weekly with Dr. Trey Dobson, presented by Southwestern Vermont Healthcare and Catamount Access Television. Welcome, everyone. Today is August 10th, 2022, and we are going to release this show at 4 p.m. tomorrow, I am told. Uh, I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. My guest today is Dr. Sheehan Fisher. He is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Sheehan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Where, where are you at this moment? Are you at Northwestern? No, I am at my home, working from home today in Chicago. In Chicago. But um, yeah, I will go in a little bit later to teach a class. You have some great artwork behind you for those oh. who are uh, watching uh, the show uh, rather than listening to it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I got those while traveling. Oh, great. So a little bit about uh, Sheehan, uh, earned his bachelor's at Rutgers University, earned his master's and PhD from the University of Iowa, and completed several fellowships at Northwestern University and the Chicago Urban League. Winner of several awards as well, including the Early Career Award from the International Marseille Society. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Marseille Society for Perinatal Mental Health and several other awards. So again, welcome. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and actually how you ended up pursuing psychology? Well, so I'm um, originally from New Jersey, grew up there um, before I you know, went to Iowa for grad school and, like as you said, Chicago for postdoc or, and um, internship. Um, I really, when I was younger, I always liked psychology. I always liked the understanding, like the, in my mind, it was the last frontier. I was like, we, we score so much in the world, but understanding the mind still seemed like there's a long way to go to really understand how it works. And we understand the brain and how it operates in relation to mental health. So I had a teacher, Mr. Moses. He was like one of the, the most favorite teachers of the students back then that taught about psychology and it really got me hooked. And then from then on, I decided to um, pursue this as a career. And I was honestly debating between adult and child. So I was trying to figure out, do I want to go into child psych? I always cared about the child outcomes, but also I felt like the, the parental side and the adult side was really important. So perinatal mental health was the perfect marriage of both of those worlds where I get to work with both parents and children to understand how the mental health of the parents influences the child and even vice versa to a degree. So it's been like a, a perfect um, opportunity for me to, to launch a career in this and I, I've been enjoying it. That's excellent. And for the audience, I'm so sorry. I didn't turn my phone off. I'm going to do that right now uh, so that we're not disturbed by that. Uh, and so that I'm not disturbed by it. So when, when you say that, what ages are you working with then? Obviously, the adults are, are parents. What, what ages are these children? Are they uh, shortly after birth? Are they toddlers? Or, uh, you know, yeah, the main work is with like the first year postpartum. That's kind of how we look at postpartum period. But I do, of course, clinically and in research follow even beyond them because we want to understand the health trajectory of the child and how that their environment early on impacts their future. So it does extend even beyond that, that time point. So tell us, yeah, a little bit about the risks for um, adverse events to mental health. I mean, of course, mental health right now, fortunately, has finally come to the forefront of our thinking, not, you know, not only in medicine, but in, in the general public uh, for a different reason. But talk to us a little bit about what your study interests are and what you've found. Well, you know, my work is focused a lot on mom and dad during the perinatal period. And so I'm known to be someone who specializes in fathers, 
but I always emphasize that most of my work is both because I really want to understand how both of them contribute to the family environment. It's just that fathers are just now becoming more included in the research and clinical practice. So we have a long ways to go to figure out what's going on with fathers, but we have enough evidence that shows that the mental health of both the mom and dad has a direct impact on the child. One of the things that I think I, lo I love to emphasize is that even if the mother is doing well and healthy, that once we control for the mother's mental health, the father still has a, a direct and individual impact on the child. So we do have to address both to make sure we're providing a healthy home for the family and for the child. What um, kind of effects do you see on the children? Well, children, we usually look at what we call internalizing and externalizing behaviors, which is basically what we will see as adults, like depression, anxiety is internalizing and externalizing is like acting out misbehavior. And what we see is that for children, they are at higher risk of developing both internalizing and externalizing behavioral problems as they develop, even um, later on in their life, based on the, the father and mother's mental health during the postpartum period and subsequently. So what we know is that the, the child's like starting to become um, at risk for developing later on as they get older, even more serious um, mental health issues. And we can see signs of it at an early stage in the child's development. Yeah, I think it's you know pretty intuitive that people know that um, that effects when a child is very young, you know, um, come out when they are teenagers, and then of course manage into adulthood. So when you see these these patients, uh, the patients of yours, mm -hmm. uh, people, um, how do they refer to you? Are 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 you part of a, a system where all you see all of the mothers after birth uh, and, and the families, or are people referred to by their primary care physician or OBGYN? So there's a combination. I work in the, an ASHA center within the psychiatry department, and we focus on women's health specifically. And mm -hmm. so just by that, people know to kind of refer to us and come to us. But also we do have relationships with like OB-GYN and also within NICU pediatrics so that when they have cases where someone is screening high, they refer to our center. And then one of us um, for the psychiatrists and psychologists, we will take on a case based on the need. But we, yeah, we, we kind of have multiple um, uh, access points for, for resources, references. It seems, it seems a little unique. Um, you know, we, I practiced in a fairly rural area, but then I also, you know, practiced in an, an academic center. And um, I'm in emergency medicine, so I'm not quite as close, but I don't see a lot of uh, uh, support and resources uh, available like you are uh, providing to these folks. Yeah, that, that is one of the hard parts, especially given some of the work I try to do in policy, like advocating for um, screening. I'm actually writing something right now with, with a colleague, Craig Garfield, who's in a pediatrics, writing something for the Pediatric Association. But, you know, when we're, I'm writing the screening part, like, yeah, we need a screen, but we have to have, to have a place to put them. Otherwise, it's almost unethical to screen someone with not a place to actually send them because now you have information without a way to help them. So we're happy to have our center and we're hoping that there are more opportunities for that. I'll throw a plug out there that I'm, I actually am leading a um, training program for um, licensed psychologists to learn how to do specifically perinatal mental health. It's like a one-year fellowship because we know we need more people who are actually competent in this particular area, because it is unique when you're thinking about how to provide interventions for this population. Do you see us right now? I know globally we're in a mental health crisis right now, and um, maybe you can just describe that a little bit and just talk about what you see as some of the needs uh, as you develop, like you say, this uh, fellowship 
type experience? Yeah, I think that we it is potentially true that we're in a mental health crisis, but I think we're more mental health awareness that people are actually like that the rates might be the same, it's just that I think people are actually more aware of what they're going through or even more susceptible to admit what they're going through to then actually even get services. That's something that even within my work around like mothers and father, for fathers, we are worried that we're underestimating the rates of depression in dads during the perinatal period. It's like the, for moms, about 20%, dads, about 10%. But we're learning that fathers and men in general don't always experience depression, for example, the same way. They have something we call like masculine depression, where they might engage in like you know heavy drinking or other types of externalized behaviors with hypersexuality or or um, aggression. They may not even notice that they're actually depressed, but they think, "Well, I'm just mad," or "I'm just you know need an extra nightcap tonight." And so we want people to become more aware of what they're going through and get past some of those cultural boundaries, whether it's based on gender or based on race or other aspects of that might limit people from admitting what they're actually going through and then getting, getting the services that they need. But yes, we are more aware of it. And because of it, I'm hoping we have more policies to support that. Like we need more policies to help prevent depression and anxiety during the perinatal period, but also then making sure that people can get access to services. Like you mentioned, even in rural areas and areas where there's not like a major hub, how do we make sure people have access to those services? I can imagine you, you probably run into all kinds of um, various, the stigma associated, the embarrassment associated mm -hmm. with it. Um, you talked about that that can increase substance use disorder. I, it probably also causes um, absenteeism. They're, they don't know what's going on and they end up, you know, sort of staying away from the family, mm -hmm. uh, which looks like it's willful, uh, but it's not. It's it's a it's a byproduct of of the their depression they're experiencing. Yeah, all of those things, and moms and dads, we see that there's there is. That's important to even think about. Of course, everyone has their responsibility, but also being aware that their mental health can play into some things that we view as oh, that's intentional versus it being a piece of their their pathology. Yeah, talk a little bit more about you know your research in particular. I, that, that's you know why you're here. I'm excited to have you. Your research, and you talked about uh, you're known a little bit of working with men, but you work with men and women, uh, moms mm -hmm. and dads. Yes. Uh, tell us what you've been finding out with men, and and maybe even you know some good news, some interventions that have been able to uh, uh, occur. So one of the things like I, like I highlighted, I did a study a little while ago that looked at moms and dads postpartum and followed up three years later. And that was an interesting part because it really showed that mother's depression had an impact on the child three years later for child internalizing and externalizing behavior. But after we control for mom's experience, the dad actually did have put the child at risk similarly for these things even three years later. Mm -hmm. Another study that I think is also important though is looking at um, trying to understand like the, we need to change how we view the family dynamic during the postpartum period where we kind of put people in silos. like. Is mom's depression, she's alone, therefore go to therapy and go get some medication and then come home and take care of the child and go to work. And we put all this pressure on the mom. And even in medicine, we have to be conscious of that. I think about how do we take some of that load off? So this is a current study, so we don't have the results in yet, but as a current study that I developed was looking at how to develop an intervention for supporting and addressing mother's depression perinatally but only the intervention is focused on the dad. So the mother's not part of the intervention at all. The mother just engaged in her normal treatment, her normal day-to-day -day life. 
and we train the father to support the mom to provide a healthy, conducive environment for her mental health as a way to support the mom's efforts at what she's already doing rather than adding more onto her plate. So the goal is that we train the fathers prenatally on how to be more involved in the home with the child, how to take care of the child even prenatally, what they can do to support the mom, learn like relationship skills, like how do you communicate effectively and work together, how, how to understand mental health. Like fathers, they're not psychologists, they're not physicians, they don't know what's going on. So we give them psychoeducation, not only about what she's going through, but like things that they can do to support her mental health, like behavioral activation, or taking over the responsibilities in the home so she can have a break every day for an hour, things that would give the mother mental space to be able to relax and reduce her stress to positively impact her mental health. And then finally, which is not last but not least, is train the dads to be involved in the home, like for the, the actual household responsibilities, like that the mom, many times our society based on cultural norms and sexism, honestly, means that the mom is still feeling like I have to take care of the dishes and the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry. Like, okay, how do we split this equally within the home or equitably within the home so that the mom doesn't feel like this is now another extra burden on her plate? So the, the goal of this intervention is to try to take a different approach to supporting mom's mental health and to also increase father responsibility within the home. Well, I mean, that's excellent. I can, you know, hear some people clapping uh, fictitiously, I'm sure, listening <laughs> listening to this. I can hear them clapping. In reality, you know, there, of course, there's going to be some willful disregard, but I, I would venture to say many men want and have wanted to participate in, but they really don't know how because of all the barriers you talked about, the, the stigma, perhaps never really being a part of uh, the learning process from, from, you know, teenage years up on how you uh, do participate in this. They're, they're part of the old strategy of go out, find work, uh, bring home uh, a steady income, and, mm -hmm. and then the woman takes care of that. And of course, there's many examples where that's not the case, but there still are, and there are still people that would want to be involved. What are you finding when, when this does happen, this relationship develops? Uh, are you having positive results? Yeah, like we are still like, like I said, process of recruiting. So like, you know, if anyone's interested, please feel reach out. But we are still at the early phase and we don't want to have, we don't have conclusive data. But what I did is this project was built out of what I do clinically. So that is where I've seen it being effective. I've done this type of work within my clinical setting. And I thought about creating a actual research protocol based on it. And I've seen positive effects of the mom feeling more supported and for the dad to feel more competent, therefore more likely to engage. Because when people don't feel competent, they tend to, as you mentioned earlier, disengage. Okay, well, I don't know how to do it. I'll just hand it off to someone else. But if we give them skills, then people tend to lean in more, and especially with men. If they know what to do, then they're more likely to follow through on how to, on how to be a, a more of an asset within the home. Yeah, and you talk a lot about in your in your research and your work, your your published work about strong relationships. Is is that what you're implying, or is that something else? That is a piece of it. Like I also, even I'm a couples counselor, so I do that type of work. Honestly, within like even the perinatal world, and even within my research, do many times include measures of the interpersonal relationship because that is a piece of it, especially for those who are in a in a um, dyadic relationship with a child is that you not only have to take care of the child well and be healthy for the child, your interactions between each other are important for the child's well-being and for the sustainability of the relationship. So that's another factor that plays into it is, I part of my postpartum protocol is making sure that the parents take time aside for each other. That's not even kid related, but just literally you had a relationship before the child came 
how do you maintain that early within the postpartum period? Because what I've seen clinically is that if people wait even like a year, then they are kind of lost about like, what, do, what connected us? What, what do we have in common? What do we used to talk about before the baby came? And that can be lost if we don't have an opportunity to sustain that early within the postpartum period. So it sounds like you you bring awareness to the couples first uh, and foremost, and then look at strategies, as you said, to maintain that relationship, imagine the relationship prior to uh, mm -hmm. the pregnancy and how does that look? I think any of us that are in relationships and have uh, children yeah. uh, recognize that when our relationship isn't strong going through periods uh, that it can be, uh, it can have a negative impact really on any, almost any age of the child from you know, prior to cognitive understanding to uh, to the teenage years, so. Absolutely. And practicing good habits early helps to sustain it later on. So um, let's see, where's our greatest opportunity for improvement there then in that relationship? What is some advice you have uh, for those of uh, in the audience and, and for any of us who are listening to you? Well, I think many times people say, well, I'm, I'm too busy. Things are just chaotic. And consistently, it's more about mentality than it is about like the pragmatics. Like when I, for example, have a patient for therapy, they come to my therapy session every week on time, ready to go because they have an appointment. But when there's like, oh, they have a date with their partner. Oh, well, the kid coughed. Oh, well, this X happened. And, and it becomes this, anything can get in the way of it because they feel like, well, I need it as a good parent. I will always move heaven and earth if anything happens with my child, rather than figuring out how to incorporate both as essentials. So part of it is just mentality-wise, looking at time together as an essential and also like an appointment. Like we made this commitment together, unless the house burns down, we will follow through on this appointment to prioritize ourselves, while also obviously the kid takes up the majority of the time, but taking two, two hours aside a week is not too much to ask to go on a date with your partner. And then of course we think about even smaller things like, okay, do you like have little conversations during the day or at, in the evening, um, find time for intimacy, like, like sexual connection is also an important part of their relationship. And then also even part of it is even self-care, like making time for yourself allows you to have the energy to be able to even take care of your partner and of the child and make sure that there's room for all those things. So what we focus on is like creating a balanced system that yes, is heavily child loaded, but still has room for the person and for their relationship. So let me see if I can rephrase this, uh, which will be a little bit correct and not exactly. Prior to children or, or you know, something else besides children, a, a big change in a, in a, in a life. Um, if you have a relationship, the, the emotional and the physical that you mentioned um, connection is, it's, it's almost um, inherent. It's part of the relationship, what attracted you together. And then you have this yes. big change uh, the biggest one, uh, or you know, one of the biggest ones, would be children, and that emotional and physical connection almost takes a back seat. So you need to have awareness that yes, of course, the children are incredibly important, some of the most important things in your lives, but so is your relationship. You have to have that healthy relationship uh, in order to to um, uh, to raise the children, and mm -hmm. you have to maybe make some effort to say we're bringing this to the forefront, that emotional and physical connection rather than almost taking it for granted and letting it slide yes. uh, away. I think that is a good, that's the word I was actually thinking of was taking it for granted. People assume, well, in a year we'll get to it or in two years. Well, once a kid goes to school, we, is, we always put it off thinking that, and then later we'll get to it. But by then the relationship has eroded 
and it's actually difficult to actually like when I work with people who, who come in later, it may take a while. We have to take multiple steps before we even get to intimacy of actual sexual intimacy because they need to even learn who each other is and have a conversation, hold hands and cuddle. Like there has to be steps to even get to that place because there, there has been distance for so long. And they have to talk about it. There has to be aware yes. of it and talk about it. Tell us, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but tell us a, a good, uh, tell us actually a negative story where you've seen a relationship that just, uh, you know, was almost unrecoverable. And then tell us a, a positive one so we can end on a good note and see that there yes. is good hope for our relationships. Well, negative is, I'll say more in general, is um, without it being agreed upon, when relationships start to fall into traditional gender roles, that is not healthy. Mm -hmm. So that when the mom is feeling isolated with the child and has to work full job and the father tends to feel like, well, that's her responsibility and starts to take things for granted. I've seen that happen way too often where that puts the mom in the position for her mental health in a negative state. And also even the father doesn't get a chance to really own their own place within the family relationship and their, their role as a father. And this creates a, such a severe divide that it can become very toxic for their relationship. So that is the negative in the example. But on the positive end, I think that when both parents really consider from each other, based on like a strength-based approach, like who do we both want to be in this relationship and as parents, they actually get to learn each other in a deeper way. Like part of relationships, you have to learn to grow with the other person. And through open communication and actual openness to hearing the other person's side, it gives a chance for people to bond together and for them not to fall into this, this already pre-established gender role versus, hey, this is who I want to be, this is who you want to be, let's work together as a team, which makes them also strong against any stressors that come from the outside. They feel united, almost like brothers in arms, like soldiers in arms, where they can go against the event versus turning on each other when stressors start to hit. Well, that is so well put. And I think you know, we have to have the awareness. It's not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. You're going to go through periods where uh, you can say all these things, but you don't actually do them. And I think it's just for, for all of us to, to understand a healthy relationship requires efforts on both sides. There's going to be positives and negatives. And then, you know, your research of, of how the children impact that and how the relationship impacts the children is so important, really in our own well-being. Um, and that's a lot of what we talk about on this show. Um, as we close up, uh, uh, Dr. Fisher, tell us a little bit. You've, you've got an interest in photography and travel. Is that correct? Oh, yes, yes. It's so something that I've done on the side. I, I love to travel. And when I travel with my family, we always do a photo shoot once a year as a way to kind of commemorate a year at, together. And I started to realize how hard it is to find photographers. So I started to actually create a small business with one of my um my friends who's an MBA, we started to create something that allows people to have access to international photography with local photographers any way they travel in the world. That's great. Have you been to Vermont, speaking of travel? I have when I was younger, but it's been a while, actually. All right. We'll, we'll come back and see us, uh, and we'll tour you around. Oh, that would be great. I would love that. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'd also like to thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity, and we will see you next week.